0: Would you turn to Romans chapter seven? This is part one of a two-part message and the conclusion of this series on Reuel. Romans chapter seven. I want to read for you verses fourteen through verse twenty-three. This is St. Paul writing. Says in verse fourteen. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it's no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin. Living in me. I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature, literally my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it's sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war. The Greek word is something like strategizing against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. We've been talking about renewal now for months, not only about being renewed, but being re being transformed into the person God intended you to be and that you will absolutely love being. The possibilities for those in Reuel are so grand, they boggle the mind. They're stunning. The people who become their true selves, who are completed in Christ, to use the biblical phrase, Well, this is 1 Corinthians 6, judge angels. They will bear a weight of glory. That's 2 Corinthians. A glory that will not just be revealed to them, but in them. That's Romans. They eagerly await a day of praise, honor, and glory when Jesus Christ is revealed and their faith is proved genuine. That's 1 Peter. The renewed man or woman will see Christ and will be like him. He or she will receive a body like the body of his glory, Philippians chapter 3, and will be changed from glory to glory. George MacDonald boldly said, When the sons of God show as they are, see, there's going to be a day of revealing for us too. When the sons of God show as they are, when the sons of God sit with the Son of God on the throne of their father, then shall they be in potency of fact the lords of the lower creation, the bestowers of liberty and peace upon it. Then shall the creation, subjected to vanity for their sakes, find its freedom in their freedom, its gladness in their sonship. This kind of thing, no doubt even better than this, is the future of God's people. It's the result of reuel. If you belong to God's people, this is your destiny. So let me ask, how does that high and holy future compare with your present daily reality? Because in my life, at least, instead of glory to glory, it sometimes feels like failure to failure. How on earth will we be lords of creation when we're not even good husbands and wives? We can hardly get through a day, through an hour, without saying something, doing something, or thinking something that betrays our high calling. And if God himself is the agent behind our renewal, if God's the one doing this, why is it taking so long? He spoke all of creation. That, according to scientists today, it'll change, but according to scientists today, that's something like 100 billion galaxies covering 28 billion parsecs. You know what a parsec is? A parsec is a unit of measurement. Uh, It would take three light years, that is, three years of traveling at 186,000 miles per second. It would take three light years to traverse one parsec, and the universe is composed of 28 billion of them. If God spoke all of that, all of creation, into existence in a mere six days... Why does my recreation make such little progress in six months or six years or 60 years? The answer, I think, is that creation was a cinch compared to recreation. So on Kierkegaard said, God creates out of nothing. Wonderful, you say. Yes, to be sure, but he does something more wonderful still. He makes saints out of sinners more wonderful and more difficult. In the first creation, God had a free hand. He worked solo. But in the second creation, in what we've been calling Reuel, he's chosen to work with his children. Have you ever worked with your little children? He's invited humanity, or I should say he's invited individual humans, you and me, To work with him. We get to play a part. Indeed, we must play a part. That's how God has ordered it. In our own recreation. God won't do it for us. He'll only do it with us. That's both the genius of the work and the genesis of all our difficulty. And in case you haven't noticed, there's difficulty. We have a problem. Now, it's not that some of us have a problem while others of us don't. We all have a problem. It is at the root of all our troubles, our physical troubles. Dave was praying for people this morning with physical troubles. It's at the root of our physical troubles, our emotional troubles, our relationship troubles, our destination troubles, heaven or hell. Our troubles whether we're religious or not, whether we're white or black, rich or poor, gay or straight, our troubles are rooted in an ugly reality. We are sinners. Until we face that fact, nothing will ever go right for us. And how we hate to face that fact. We have foibles, not sins. We have a bad day. We, we slipped. We weren't ourselves. We made a mistake. We were stupid. We had a lapse in judgment. But our problem lies deeper. People who understood the nature of our condition better than we do diagnosed it as sin. Sin. But the problem isn't just that we sin. It's even more serious than that. It's that we're sinners. We're infected. We're contagious. We're a danger to ourselves and to others. Sin goes unrecognized in our lives. It masquerades in a thousand disguises while it damages and destroys. It must be unmasked. We can often see it in others. But it is so hard to see in ourselves. We talk about it in social issues and politics and sexuality and abortion and divorce and corporate greed and prejudice and the selfish use of wealth, but we hardly talk about it in ourselves. But it's there and it needs to be unmasked. Thankfully, God has a tool for unmasking sin, it is called the law which he gave us, this is verse 13. I started at verse 14, but this is verse 13. In order that sin might be recognized as sin. The Greek says something like, in order that sin might be manifest, that it might be unmasked. Because, you see, it often goes unrecognized. Like termites in the walls of a house. And unrecognized, it will do great damage. In our lives, you might not see it for a long time, but you will. Our biggest obstacle in living the Christian life is not ignorance or weakness or the postmodern cultural milieu. It is sin, not existing out there in some kind of static form, but working in here. That's what most impedes our progress. Until we understand that and take appropriate steps, we're not going to make any lasting progress. We'll move forward a few steps, and we'll slide back a few steps. We must see that our principal problem is not our spouse or our boss or our hypocritical neighbor. It's not our parents or our finances. It's sin living in me, as Paul puts it in verse 20, or sin that's made its home in me, as that phrase could be translated. What an awful thought. Sin that's made its home in me. Now, before we can talk about taking appropriate steps, which we're especially going to do next week, before we can talk about taking appropriate steps to deal with sin, we need to make sure we understand what sin is. Sin is not merely doing a bad thing or a mean thing or a thing that God has forbidden for some reason. Sin is a dynamic, powerful, God-rejecting force. The external act, the thing that we pay attention to, lying, stealing, committing adultery, or whatever else, is not the essence of sin. The essence, the really devastating part of sin, is that it rejects God, It banishes him to some nether region, at least momentarily, and and tries to take his place. That's the horrible thing. What people try to do to Christ on the cross, get rid of him, is what is going on every time we sin. Which is why the author of Hebrews draws a parallel between the two. Sin is anti-God. It is a rejection of God. It's an attempt to get rid of him. You can see this for yourself. Now, this is one of those things that has the disclaimer. Do not try this at home, but you will. When you sin, you will always push God away from you before you act. You cannot sin without pushing God away. That's the devastating part about sin. Sin is that you try to get rid of him. You try to get rid of the Lord of the universe so you can do what you want. Understanding that gives us insight into the surprising attitude that we find towards sin in the Bible. Here's some sin that we think little, grumbling, for example. And in the Bible, it's regarded as if it were the very doorway to damnation. While some other sin that we think particularly heinous, like murder, is regarded as completely pardonable. That's because the, the, the essence, the poison of sin, does not reside in the external act, but in the rejection of God that always accompanies it. And a man can reject God just as completely through the sin of laziness or grumbling as through the sin of murder or rape. Now, it's fundamentally important that we get what I'm about to say next. This active God-rejecting power has spread through humanity. That's what the Apostle Paul told us in Romans 5.12. Sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way, death came to all men because all men sinned. But that's only part of the bad news. Sin is not only spread through humanity, it's resident in us, in you. It lives in you, a cancer that keeps you from achieving spiritual health and wholeness from your renewal. It hinders you from doing the things that you actually have chosen to do. I'm going to do this, and then you don't do it. Do you remember insight, implementation, or decision and implementation? You have some profound insight. And more than that, you've actually decided you're going to act on that insight, and then you never do. Why? Because the sin within has hindered you from carrying out your own decision. Listen to how Paul describes it in verse 15. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Does that sound familiar to you? I'm going to stop yelling at the kids. I'm really, this time, I'm going to stop yelling. I'm going to stop exaggerating when I talk to people. I'm going to stop drinking. I'm going to stop gambling, stop looking at porn. I'm going to have a better attitude at work. I'm going to encourage my spouse. I'm going to pray more. And yet, what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, that's what I do. Paul's conclusion, verse 17, then it's no longer I myself who do it, but it's sin living in me. Now, does that sound like an... An apostolic flip Wilson claiming, the devil made me do it? Does it sound like a cop-out? But no one who knows Paul could ever think he was copping out. He was not denying responsibility. He was facing reality. Sin living in me is a reality which, if not faced, will be the controlling reality of our lives. Listen to verses 18 and 19. I have the desire to do what is good, but I can't carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil I do not want to do. This I keep on doing. Can you feel the frustration? And again, as if to drive home the point, if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. And notice what he says for it next. This is verse 22. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body. Or literally, in my members. Waging war against the law of my mind. And as I said before, the word is, we get our word strategy from this word. Strategizing against the law of my mind, and making me a prisoner of the law of sin that's at work within my members. Paul divides himself up, almost as if he were a country in a civil war. The capital, his mind, is under the control of God's law, delights in the law of God. But in the outer regions, what he calls my members, a very different law is in effect. There the law of sin holds sway. You can see that really clearly in verse 25. I myself, and I didn't read this originally, but I myself in my mind am a slave to God's law. But in the sinful nature, literally, in my flesh, a slave to the law of sin. He says the same kind of thing to the Galatians. The sinful nature, literally again, the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit, and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh, they are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want to do. You really want to do it, but you don't do it. Now, remember verse 14. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, or literally, I am fleshly. The spiritual law does not operate in that realm. The spiritual law does not operate in the flesh. Let me, let me try to draw some examples. Let me give you a parallel from the world of physics. The physical laws of gravity, the strong nuclear force, and electromagnetism affect almost everything in the universe in one way or another. They affect you. Your body would actually fly apart if it weren't for those things. They affect all the subatomic particles in the universe. But the massless neutrino particle, as far as scientists can tell, are entirely unaffected by those three forces. Gravity doesn't pull it. Electromagnetism doesn't repel it. It is untouched by the strong nuclear force. Scientists say that right now neutrinos are passing through your body and through the earth as if it weren't even there. Has gravity then somehow failed? No, there's nothing wrong with gravity. It works just fine. But the neutrinos do not and cannot respond to it. In the same way, there's nothing wrong with God's law. In fact, it is, this is verse 12, holy, righteous, and good, but the flesh cannot respond to it. The desires of the flesh are about as responsive to God's law as neutrinos are responsive to the law of gravity. It is, they aren't. In chapter 8, Paul makes the same point, and we're going to see this next week, by describing the law as powerless, the law of God. He calls it powerless over the flesh, which does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Can't even do so. Uh, Let me give you another illustration. (laughs) We have an old console-type TV at home, as I'm sure some of you do. And when I say old, a couple years ago when my nephew came for Thanksgiving, he walked in the living room and he said, Uncle Shane, I've got to take a picture of that. (laughs) (laughs) When television went digital back in 2009, on one day in June, all across the country, television went digital. When it went digital, our old analog set was no longer compatible. It couldn't receive or make sense of the new signal. The TV still functioned, all of its parts worked. But apart from a digital conversion, it could no longer serve its purpose. When, when a person is saved, when spiritual conversion takes place in a person's life, his or her spirit starts to receive spiritual signal. That is, he or she receives the life-giving spirit of God. But part of that person is still unspiritual or, to use Paul's word, fleshly and unreceptive to the Spirit. The person must go on and be converted. You say, well, he was converted. No. When we talk about people being converted when they receive Jesus. Receiving Jesus is the beginning of conversion, not the end of it. Conversion must extend to our entire lives. So here's a person who's received eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. That person has undergone a regime change. He's been translated, transferred from one kingdom to another. He's undergone a regime change, and now he wants to obey God. But his life, or at least part of it, is out of control. That is, it is not under the control of God, but under the power of sin. Think of of Baghdad right now. There's a legitimate, democratically elected government there. It makes decisions for the entire country of Iraq... And yet those decisions are not followed because other forces occupy large parts of the country, forces that do not recognize or submit to the authority of of the government. In a similar way, the God-forsaken, or really the God-forsaking part of us, the flesh, does not recognize or submit to God's authority. If that sounds terrible to you, it is. Terrible. Listen to Paul's cry in verse 24. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? And it's not only terrible. It's hopeless. If we try to handle it on our own. And that's what many people try to do. End up in despair. They get all religious And they soon find out that that's not the answer. So they try to depend on willpower, and they discover that the will is not powerful enough. Some people, Christians, end up in self-hatred, unhappy, angry, depressed. But there's another way. Your part is not force. Force. It's not asceticism, it's not sheer determination, it is faith. The flesh, now I'm not talking about your body, but that God-forsaken, God-forsaking part of you, listen, it must become spiritual. Your entire life must become spiritual. Not just your prayer life, But your thought life, your social life, your love life, your recreational life, your work life, all must become spiritual. Sometimes Christians talk about their spiritual life as if that was just one of many parts of their life. Oh, I do my spiritual life and I do my other parts. That is the way of endless frustration. God intends that all of our lives be taken up into the spiritual Now, if you're Catholic or you grew up Catholic, you sometimes heard talk about the assumption of Mary. That is the taking of Mary from the physical realm into the spiritual realm. I'm thinking of the assumption of the flesh in our lives into spirit. That is possible. In fact, it's necessary. It's what Paul had in mind when he lamented that the Corinthians were not yet spiritual But fleshly, he took for granted. And this is important to note. He took for granted that they should and someday would cease to be fleshly and become spiritual. Elsewhere, he talked about the spiritual man. And he addressed mature believers as you who are spiritual. They were people who in large part had been transformed, whose lives now flowed from and were responsive to spirit. That transformation from fleshly to spiritual is not something that we can make happen on our own. Understand that. I've gone to spiritual formation conferences and, and looked at people and I thought, man, they think that they can light a candle and, and hold their hands up and meditate and something's going to happen. You can't make it happen on your own. It is the result of... We're going to see this next week in chapter 8. It is the result of Christ's coming to die on the cross and the Spirit's coming to live in our lives. Now, do we have a role to play in that? Absolutely. Father God is working with his children on this project. And they keep messing it up. And he is infinitely patient with them. We have a role to play, and we're going to see next week what that looks like. And our final message from this series, based on the unparalleled teaching of Romans chapter 8. I suggest you read Romans chapter 8 before you come next week, and prepare your heart for what God wants to say to you. Now let's pray. God, help us to take seriously... What you've revealed to us through your word today. Through your Apostle Paul. I ask for just one small step today. And that is that you'll help us by grace. Stop blaming everyone and everything else for our problems. and see really at the heart of it all, it's sin dwelling in me. Lord, I say that's a small step, but it's a huge step, and I pray that you'll do it for us. You'll help us take it. You'll walk with us through it. And you, may you so transform us that every part of our lives is open, is vibrant with your spirit. We ask for this great good gift through your son, Jesus, who made it all possible. Amen.